Hi, it's Matt Trueblood. Today is Thursday, March 7th. We're three weeks from real opening day. Not for these purposes, counting the A's and Mariners games in Tokyo. Although, of course, we'll all watch those with rapt attention. But, uh, yeah, three weeks from real opening day today. And I'm going to do something a little different than usual. Hopefully it's not going to affect your listening experience very much. But I'm going to record this podcast in a couple of segments. I need to walk from my office to pick up some lunch. So I'm going to record right now as I walk to lunch. Then I'm going to turn it off to pick it up. And then I'll record a little bit on the way back and uh, get it posted for you. So I am kind of relaunching after a very dormant winter in which I just needed to focus on other things. My email newsletter penning bull and i mentioned that not to plead for subscriptions because you can make that decision on your own and you can find out more about it on my twitter account at ma trueblood or the newsletter's twitter account at penning bull but uh more because it's an entry point to one of the subjects i want to talk about today the piece that i wrote for the newsletter that went out this morning is about salvador perez who's obviously losing this coming season to Tommy John surgery, uh, which really sucks if you're a Royals fan. Like, this season was going to be difficult and uh, nigh unwatchable already. But now to have one of the two sort of remaining franchise icons of those back-to-back pennant winners taken off the field for its entirety is going to make the season even more excruciating. It does present an opportunity for the Royals because Perez is famously poor as a pitch framer. Framing isn't all there is to catching, and Perez does just about everything else that a catcher is asked to do, including the intangible stuff, really well. Uh, He's an important leader. He handles pitching staffs. He's had a very good arm behind the plate. He's just not a good pitch framer. Still, that is the single most important defensive responsibility a catcher has, shaping the strike zone. And Perez isn't good at it. And some of the research that went into the newsletter, I'm not going to break down the numbers because reading off lists of numbers doesn't make for great audio, but uh, some of the research I did focused on his arm and the way that Statcast's pop times and average... Uh, arm strength on throws from home to second to try and catch base stealers over the last few years it's already trending in the wrong direction and to now have a very serious elbow injury albeit one that may just be an exacerbation of what had already been kind of a nagging problem still it's it's a red flag for his future behind the plate because if there's already one thing that he's not doing well and now there could very well be another that he's just never good at again. It's a concern. Uh, So it opens a door for the Royals with this entire season's worth of plate appearances and innings to catch to try out some other options. And they don't need to focus solely on their in-house options. They could go and sign Martin Maldonado, who's still a free agent. They could look to gobble up one of what looks like it could be a handful of 
kind of extraneous catcher options, guys who still have some promise left, still have certain things they do well or are young and, you know, possessed of at least one intriguing tool, but who look like they'll be squeezed off the rosters of especially some contending teams. So I wrote a little bit about how the Royals could go searching for one of them, try them out as a catcher. Now, in a perfect world, I still think you want Perez to come back and be your starting catcher next season. He's got two more years on his contract beyond 2019. And he has the most value if he's behind the plate and doing well back there. Um, We know that this is an extraordinarily free swinger. That's held down his on-base percentages always, but especially last season. I think he had a 274 OBP. That's not going to get it done anywhere else on the diamond. But there is good news with his offensive profile. This is a guy who hits the ball hard about as often as any other player in the league. And specifically last year, you know, with an exit velocity of at least 95 miles an hour and in the launch angle between 10 and 40 degrees where that's most productive, the only person who created a batting ball, a batted ball with those characteristics in a higher percentage of their plate appearances than Perez did was Mookie Betts. <laughs> that's a big deal. Now, it doesn't play up quite the way you might like in Kauffman Stadium. And again, Sal Perez is historically averse to walks, which is a problem. But if you felt like he could improve his plate discipline, if he were a little less focused on his defensive responsibilities, you could look at bringing him back next year as a first baseman or a DH. At the very least, you can start playing him more at those spots and maybe phasing in a defensive replacement at catcher. All right, that's where I'm going to end segment one. And when I come back on the other side, we'll talk more about an article I wrote earlier this week at Baseball Prospectus and maybe some of the news reports floating around this morning. All right, I'm back. And on this side, I am just going to kind of run through some miscellaneous tidbits. Uh, Firstly, just to touch on it as we go, I wrote an article this week at BaseballProspectus.com about the possible future expansion of Major League Baseball. A couple of weeks ago now, Rob Manfred gave an interview about uh, his hope that MLB could expand to 32 teams at some point in the not-too-distant future. Um, And it's not hard to see why he'd want to do that. It's part of a commissioner's legacy. It's sort of the natural move for an industry that in which revenue keeps growing and growing so substantially. I mean, it's really skyrocketed over the last 20 years or so, and there's been no expansion during that time. It also would facilitate some changes that I know MLB would probably like to make in the long run. Getting rid of some of their inventory at the front end of the regular season, where demand can be low, weather can be bad, publicity just tends not to run in their direction. Um, and to move that into playoffs at the end of the year. Expanding the playoffs probably to include a three-game wildcard series rather than a one-game play-in of sorts. Um, Although those wildcard games, as they work right now, draw a lot of fan interest just because it is uh, 
do or die in a single contest. I think in the long run, we're going to see the playoffs expand and the regular season contract to some extent. Expansion would facilitate that because it would come with realignment probably into two, two leagues or conferences containing four four-team divisions. And things get a lot simpler from there if you do want to expand, expand the playoff format. And just as the sort of uh, traditionalism kind of gets broken up by those additions, it gets easier to say, and we're not going to play 162 regular season contests anymore. Whether they scale it back to 154 or even 144 games, and I think it'll be 144 in the long run, probably not in the short. But again, in either case, expansion is what will make, will sort of accommodate those changes. Now, there are a lot of roadblocks to those, and that's what I kind of detail in the article at BP, which I encourage you to check out. There are environmental concerns with that. There are a whole lot of financial or economic concerns in terms of how teams might share markets that would need to add another team if they were going to find a viable place for a new club. There are questions about whether you could put a new club in a market that's not already claimed by some existing MLB team without that club being sort of handcuffed by just how rich all the existing teams are. So that's something to ponder and look into. It's going to become a storyline over the next couple of years as the Rays and A's finally resolve their pending ballpark issues. But right now it's something to be aware of and start considering so you know where you fall as, as these things become more material issues. And then I just wanted to touch briefly on a couple of things. There have been stories popping up everywhere, uh, but a couple specifically, one at The Athletic, which is sort of where you expect to find stuff like this, from Sahadev Sharma on the Cubs pitching lab and the way that they have changed the degree and the methodology by which technology informs their pitching infrastructure, their instruction, their pitch design, their player development. And then another actually at the Cincinnati Inquirer from Paul Doherty, a columnist who's been around as long as I can remember, uh, who wrote about the Reds doing many of the same things with a sort of ahead of the curve uh, pair of new pitching coaches. There's also a piece from Ken Rosenthal back at The Athletic uh, digging into how the Twins are doing that with their new pitching coach whom they plucked from the college ranks just this year. The point of all of which is both the newer sort of the more new school media outlets and the very old and established ones everyone is recognizing because you really at this point cannot fail to recognize that this is how the game is being played much of the war of baseball is being waged through technology and that's compelling it's certainly interesting to follow especially for the nerdier among us um it may not be great for the long-term prospects of sport as a generalized endeavor if we're starting already to feel like players are almost robots created in literally a lab. These kinds of things are 
long-term issues. But right now, it's just something interesting to follow. And as much as it may seem sort of uh, geeky or archaic, if you're not aware of what teams are doing in this realm, if you're not thinking about how they're using big data to apply broad principles to most of the players in their charge, then you're not really understanding how teams are doing business and you're going to find watching baseball increasingly confusing or even frustrating. Finally, just a little bit of indulgence of my own weird out there idea, which is about Craig Kimbrell. As I said in the first segment, we're three weeks from opening day. Kimbrell doesn't have a home. And we're at a point where I do wonder if he might just hold out and not sign until sometime in June after the draft comes and goes. At that point, his market value would go up because he'd no longer be attached to draft pick compensation. Just as importantly, that's the time when teams start going shopping for the bullpen improvements they need to be not just a playoff contender, but a World Series contender. And I think if you were a free agent reliever of the caliber of Craig Kimbrell, you might be really interested in finding out just how much teams would pay in money for that kind of an upgrade. We've seen teams pay exorbitant prospect prices to get those things done over the last several years. It'd be interesting and probably very profitable for Kimbrough if the gambit worked to see how much he could squeeze out of a team by saying, hey, I'll be your trade, line, trade deadline addition and you don't have to give up any of your farm system depth. Again, it's definitely risky if he doesn't seem uh, if he seems remotely rusty if he can't find a place to pitch against live hitting and show teams that he's still his normal self then he's not going to get that value but if he could realize it it could be good for free agents for a long time to come all right we'll talk more tomorrow